Hello and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast, Episode 5, with Kelly Cressia-Moller. Kelly Cressia-Moller is a poet and visual artist. Her poems have been nominated for Pushcart Prizes, Best New Poets, Best of the Net, and have appeared widely in journals and at literary websites, including Gargoyle, North American Review, Poet Lore, Salamander, Thrush Poetry Journal, Valparaiso Poetry Review, Waterstone Review, and Ziziva, among others. She's an associate editor at Glasslier Press. She lives in the Bay Area with her husband, two sons, and their Basset Hound. Shade of Blue Trees is Kelly's first poetry collection, the finalist for the Wilder Prize at Two Sylvia's Press. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Han. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk about your new book and art and all kinds of things that I have been wanting to ask you about. So this is perfect. Um, would you like to? I'm delighted. Oops. Thank you. <laughs> would you like to start by reading us a poem? Sure, that would be wonderful. I will start with the poem begin and end at Big Sur. See the coral dust over the mountains. The hooves of sunrise horses are in full gallop. No one told the bees it was a silent retreat. Look at my palm, where these slivers of heart and fate intersect. You are here. What if a woodpecker has a migraine? A dying ash, its upturned, barren candelabras, still majestic. My trailer's sliding door is stuck, gives a little more each morning. First whale pod sighting, cerulean breach and swirl, worth the sunstroke. I'm convinced this sow bug crossing my path is the same one who made love to my eraser last year. A schoolgirl crush on ponderosa pines, spiky hair, limber branches, muscled cones like silent birds. In late afternoon, pampas grass tapers shine silver as the hair in my brush. Starburst spores float over my shoulder. Someone's made a wish upon a dandelion clock. I turn around, no one is there. I hold the sun's hand until it falls asleep. The ocean creates its own light. Thank you. Thank you. I love that line. No one told the bees it was a silent <laughs> retreat. Yes. Thank you. Um, they were pretty active and um, they were having a, a good old time in the, in the tree that was uh, next to my uh, little trailer there. Oh. And, and that just seemed like a, a fitting line to convey. I think it's so interesting because it brings up that, you know, bees are this classic poet image. Well, I mean, okay. I'm a huge Dickinson buff, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there's no poetry without bees. Um, but it also brings up, you know, sound and, you know, your book, Shade of Blue Trees, is so full of visual art, but it is also so full of music, um, which is just is something you're really attuned to throughout this beautiful book. Um, so I, I really love that the image is intrinsically a sonic image for you. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think just music in general plays such an important role um, in my life. So I am especially attuned to sound. I mean, I'm, I, I play the drums and um, I, music is one of these, you know, of my four touchstones in life that I go to for comfort or solace or, um, you know, just um, to be, to, to feel good. And um, I'm, I'm, I don't, 
I don't know that I could write poetry without it. So I'm glad that mm -hmm. you um, feel it's there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think I was surprised, not because I was like, there won't be music in this book, but I think I thought that it would be knowing that you're a visual artist as well and that you have an art history background. I just, you know, was I was just getting ready to just be so in a visual space. And it was just so delightful to realize that, uh, you know, it was, it's not visual art at the expense of the rest of art, right? Mm. Oh, that's really good to hear. Thank you. That just made my day. <laughs> oh, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I have, I have so many questions and um, and I'm so excited to talk about visual art. Um, before we do, I wanted to ask you how life has changed for you since your first, first book has come out, even and especially during a pandemic. Um, how have submissions changed? How has your writing changed? Just I, I've heard some people say nothing changes when your book comes out. And I just don't think that's quite correct. Huh. That's wow. Um, I wouldn't, um, I think it, yeah, I mean, having a book for me was, um, a dream since I was about six and, um, that's the honest truth and I had been trying a long time to get this book published and um, and uh, it means everything to me it it means um, having the possibility to be read is such a gift um, I feel like I can be now in a conversation um, mm -hmm. where uh, I wasn't allowed before um and so people um you know people want to hear you read now people mm -hmm. uh, are asking you to be on podcasts um so it's this um it's this wonderful connection yeah um which is different than when you are publishing um only in journals which i have for many years um published in journals and um, I always considered myself as a, a published poet, but it's interesting to me how other people now consider me finally being a published poet because I have a book, which mm -hmm. I find very strange. <laughs> but it's just interesting that that perception of me has changed for some people. Um, but for me personally, it's a great, wish has been fulfilled and i i can't explain it except to say that i'm much more peaceful yes. um um because of that it was um really really distressing to me um not to have have this have a book out and i know that probably seems whiny or I'm not sure, no. but um, I had some really close calls with just wonderful presses. So I knew I was close and, mm -hmm. um, you know, all props to the most wonderful Diane Seuss for, <clears throat> you know, really just contacting me and saying, send me this, you're, you're close. Let's see what we can do here. And um, she really, really helped, uh, we worked really well together in getting this book into the shape it is. Mm. And, um, and that's when it was picked up by um, two Sylvia's, which I was so glad when I turned 50, I remember going, I can submit to the Wilder Prize. I'm so excited <laughs> because I knew, I knew they looked at all manuscripts for publication. And mm. so I knew that if I didn't win, there was still a chance that maybe they would like it enough to publish it. And that's what happened. And I am so grateful uh, for that, that I found such a wonderful home for my book with um, Kelly and Annette, who are just amazing editors and people. And um, I couldn't be happier. So, I mean, it, it changed, it changed things for me in that, well, it's strange because I haven't really written, I haven't written mm -hmm. anything really new since the book, but that also is dovetailing with the fact that we were in a pandemic. And so the um, makeup of my routine at home 
when I wrote changed completely because I now had um, everybody home. <laughs> Whereas before they would go off to work or one would be in a dorm room or one would be going mm -hmm. to high school, they were all here. And we live in a little shoebox of a house. <laughs> it's very small. Uh, there's not, it's not like I can go to the second story and have it by myself. Mm -hmm. there, there's no second story. It's, it's, you know, we're, we each have our own room and that's it. And um, it's really hard when people are conducting, um, you know, uh, my husband is doing his, his, you know, science work and he has, uh, you know, Zoom calls and mm -hmm. um, I need quiet. I need, yes, I need <laughs> quiet. I need silence. And so when they would be off doing their, their lives, I would have a stretch of hours um, over, you know, over the work days that um, that's when I did my writing. That's when I could put things mm -hmm. together. And then also when I would go on a, a little four day writing retreats um, at Big Sur, which would happen three times a year. Well, all of that was gone. And so I haven't been writing, but I have been painting and I have been able to do um, erasures. Those are two things I can do with everybody at home. So mama's not losing her mind. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, little things are coming in mm -hmm. and whatnot. And I do have some submissions out from from things that I had worked on a little bit. Um, I just um, I just feel more relaxed about things. Yes. I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not cavalier about it, but I do feel like there's a relief. Yes. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you yeah I don't know if you feel the same I know this you know the wet pecan light which is such a marvelous book incredible book and um I know that's your first as well um you have to feel maybe similar or what do you think yes no very similar um and in fact I remember there being such a, a pressure to submit and publish and like constantly publish like there's this like do you you know I, I I try not to be influenced obviously by everything I see on Twitter because that would be a mess um, <laughs> but I saw someone say oh like oh guys I haven't had an acceptance in three weeks can you believe that like I'm falling apart and I was like oh dear <laughs> But there really almost is that. But I, I also really sympathize and understand that because as soon as Ross had accepted my book at Bull City Press, and I think I want to say it was like, maybe it was fall 2018 or 19. I don't even remember. But as soon as it, I just relaxed so much and it was like, I didn't have to prove myself anymore. Um that's a, that is a really, really good way to put it. You didn't have to prove yourself anymore. And, and maybe that's just in my head, but I, I just really relax. I we have more... the same head because it was yeah. in my head too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, something really does happen. And I just, you know, I think the work, I started to be more confident about what I sent out. And I also just started sending out way less. So like last year, you know, maybe I sent out to 25 places, mm -hmm. um, which is a lot. Like that's still me pushing myself, um, right. but definitely just a lot of relief and um, less pressure. Yeah. So much less pressure. No, it was. Um, and I think, and I may be wrong. I don't know. I think when you have three, four, five, six books out, when you've you know really been widely, uh, not widely, but um, frequently published, and you have a lot of books under your belt, I think you, from what I have seen, I think poets tend to forget how hard it is to get that first book, and what a difference that makes. Yeah, yeah. that's what I've um, you know. It's like they're like, you know, why are you feeling so bad about this, Kel? You know, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll happen. I was like, it's been six years. I'm like on, I, I, and the money, the money that you spend mm -hmm. for submitting, I mean, don't even get me started. Cause I was like, I'm, 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 I'm maxing here. I'm, yeah. 
I'm done. And yeah. it's, it's like, you know, oh, you know, don't worry about it. And it was like, no, you, you have to worry about it. You forget what it's like not to have a book. You're, you are not asked to readings. You are not, you, you, you really don't have um, as big a voice or a no. voice or, you know, you're not taken seriously. No. And um I was, you know, you just, you know, and I, I am not an academic. I am, I don't, do not have an MFA. I, I didn't have a, you know, whole team, uh, you know, behind me who is, uh, in the ranks. And, um, I was like, all I have are my publications mm -hmm. and, and my, my poems that are in, in journals. And I remember somebody telling me, you know, people are going to see your work the most when it's in your collection so you need a collection hmm. and it's like okay <laughs> right because i think about that yeah like and when there's you so many there's so many and it's not to say oh you know there's just so many people writing poetry and there's so many people writing good poetry mm -hmm. i mean there are and there's just so many presses to go around you know, I mean, it's, it's a crazy competition out there. That's yeah, true. It's true. And it, it depends like who you're submitting with at the mm -hmm. time. It's like, you may have a great book and, but you may be submitting with somebody else who just is slightly better. And it just, you know, nudges you off or maybe, maybe their manuscript doesn't need as much attention or as much reshaping and it's ready to go. And yes. so, and so they get it. I mean, I understand. I, I get it. There's just, there's just a lot of people, I think, writing really good poetry right now, too. It's true. I know. And there is, you know, it's, it's a wonderful in terms of accessibility and online journals and, um, you know, the small journals that I feel like kind of erupt or come up out of the ground even over like people's lunch break when they're like hey maybe i should start a poetry journal which i'm all for i think it's fantastic well um, right. <laughs> look what moist poetry is doing i know <laughs> case in point i mean yes but but you can pick up someone's book and you know a new book that you've just gotten and you'll see that they're you know you'll read an amazing poem and you're like oh my goodness was this poem published and you go and look at the acknowledgments and sure enough it was published two years ago and you never saw it so um there well, is something about visibility with and, and i know uh, numerous poems in your book have been published and um every single poem in my book with the exception of one has been published wow yeah so, I mean, you know, I, I was, I was trying, <laughs> I was trying just to, you know, I just think when you, especially when you don't have a MFA, I think people need to see that, you know, is she serious about this or she's just, you know, doing this on the side or, or what? And so I, I wanted to have a, um, a nice list of publications mm -hmm. and ones that I was really proud of, um, because that's all I had. I always tell my students, especially if we read a poem apart from someone's book, you know, I say like, this poem is out of its natural habitat. Its natural <laughs> habitat is in the book because, you know, it, I, I want them to understand, like, it's great to enjoy a poem by itself, but like, there is a place where this book, this, you know, poem lives and breathes among other words that it was meant to be beside. Um, and there's something really special and significant about that. Um, but Kelly, there's such a, I mean, when I, when I started reading Shade of Blue Trees, there is such a deep, loamy feeling to your book that like, this is a book that has come out of such deep engagement with art and life and experience. Like this is not, it feels like, I mean, no offense to first book poets out there, including myself, but like, it doesn't feel like a first book. <laughs> it feels like, it feels like a fifth book. Like it's got this like deep, oh, I just, I think the deep resonance of it um, and craftsmanship of it. And I mean, I've heard people say like, I gave myself three months to write my first book. And I look at them and I'm like, what, you know, like, 
books come out of your life, you know, and you need that time and you feel it and you see it when a poet has lived with their book. Yeah. Um, Um, Yeah. And I think, I mean, the oldest poem in this book is 10 years old. mm -hmm. um, And a lot happened uh, in my life over Mm -hmm. those 10 years. And, um, um, and it's kind of interesting to, to merge poems that are very old with, you know, poems that were written maybe two years ago or something and to see that how they still fit. Um, and, um, you know, it's still, it's still a thread of my life that's going, that's going through the book for sure. Um, but yeah, it's just, it is, I, I can't imagine writing a first book in three months. I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I've given myself a decade for the second book. <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> I said, okay, hoping to have a second book 10 years. Because yeah. I mean, it took me six to get this even published. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I, I don't know. And I, you know, it, and you know, there's a lot of poems that I really like that didn't get yeah. into the book. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that's just so important when you're making a manuscript that you, you have to have that ability to let those go. And, um, you know, I just remember, you know, talking to one of my dear friends, Molly Spencer, the fabulous Mm. poet, and she's like, Kelly, there will be other books. Yes. I was like, okay. (laughs) I know. And also, you know, it means that some, some MFA student in their future is going to be blessing your name when they're like, I'm going to read the complete works of Kelly Cressia Muller for my my book list. It'll be like reading Lucy Brock Boido and being like, thank God, four books. Right? I mean, I was like, yeah, I mean, one of my all-time favorite poets, I mean, ever is uh, Bridget Pajean Kelly. And, you know, she has, what, three, maybe four? And um, those are just, like, everything. And um, so... Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I can't imagine putting that type of pressure on myself. So I gave myself a decade and, you know, if I do it within 10 years, I'm going to be pretty happy. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean. I'm just a realist. <laughs> yeah. I'm someone who, I write a lot, mm. um, which means I have to be very generous with understanding what I shouldn't keep. I'm not going to maybe go so far as to call them garbage poems, but you know, (laughs) um, but I mean, you have to write at least 10 bad poems to get to one good one. And the only, like the best revision practice for me is just time and waiting. Like I have, I have to wait like six months and see how I feel. Um, because my feelings are all over the place all Mm -hmm. the time. (laughs) I mean, you also have to have something to revise. So the fact that you're getting it down is wonderful. I tend to write a ton in my head, um, do a lot of work in my head. And then it's like, okay, when I feel like I've got some really, some really good lines ready to go, then I start. I'm not one that I've like never journaled in my life. I don't, I can't do it. I was like, I don't, I've tried. It just doesn't work for me. Ah. So I do a lot of thinking about my poetry before I sit down and write about it. I love journaling, but Mm -hmm. I cannot journal and write poetry. I can only do one. So I have to choose, um, (laughs) which is so, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's totally so how people work. I mean, it's just, and I'm not good with, I'm not good with prompts either. I know that's probably sacrilege to say, no. but I, really, <laughs> I, I just, um, I usually end up doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, the prompt may take me to, compl- to completely different area than what the prompt wanted. And Um, but I have a hard time with that too. I just tend to write about things that are making the most noise 
and the things that are keeping me up at night and mm. um, the things that come back to me mm -hmm. and the things that take a long time to unknot like problems or um, issues or uh, things like that. So, I mean, for Shade of Blue Trees, a lot of this, but this book is a, a huge part of this book is on grieving and loss mm -hmm. and um, different types of loss. And so therefore it's about love because you don't grieve things you don't love. So true. Um, Hmm. you know and a, a, wow, so, that's a really good point <laughs> so much of it is rooted in the natural world especially mm -hmm. the northern californian landscape the coast because one that's that's where um that's my home that's where i don't live at the coast i wish but i go to the coast when i have issues i need to work on um so when my, my parents passed away um, about a year and a half uh, between each other. And so um, those Big Sur retreats were mm. essential to my grieving and healing. And it is basically another character in the book. Mm. And so um, you have just a lot of landscape playing a part and animals and hmm. you know we mentioned the bees earlier but there's deer and um yeah it's just it was a um crucial part i love my that i love the idea of landscape and particular landscape as another character in the i mean i think of mm -hmm. right away of um how is it it's housekeeping or is it good housekeeping housekeeping Right. Yes. By um Carolyn. Yes. Wow. And I was thinking about how the lake. Oh yeah. Is its own character. Yeah. No, I mean, I thank the Pacific Ocean in my acknowledgments. Yes. <laughs> and the Incredible. Lucia Santa Lucia Mountains, because really, um, I'm not sure I would have made it through that mm. with without those things. I just um, th that's my place to go to uh, when I need to figure things out. And um, when your both of your parents die, it's a you know you know it's coming, but it's uh, still incredibly shocking. I don't yeah. care what your relationship uh, yeah. is with uh, each of mm. them; um, it's still a huge uh, blow. And, um, you know, they're, they haunt this book uh, quite a bit, mm -hmm. for sure. Yes. Yeah, and that brings up, for me, um, one of my favorite novelists, Iris Murdoch, um, she said that great art does not console. Um, and there's always such a balance in her worth work behind between like kind of the fantasy of consolation and then being able to see something for itself in reality mm. um and i think about that when i think about really difficult subjects in a lot of my favorite poetry books um you know what does art that is not console look like um is something that comes up and I think, I mean, it's, yeah, it's so, I mean, it, and it, you know, it's kind of bound up with the idea of tragedy. It's, it's bound up with the idea of, you know, seeing a beautiful piece of visual art. That's also, you know, like, what is it? A martyrdom of someone like, why are we standing in front of this painting mm -hmm. that has St. Sebastian riddled with right. arrows? Like, what do we get out of that? Like, right. so it's really interesting. But then you can look at an Agnes Martin and um, just be feeling this incredible symmetry and her subtle vibrations mm -hmm. and be absolutely mesmerized. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that to me can be incredibly yeah. consoling. Yes. And 
or something. It makes something shift yes. in me or um, yes. a Clifford Still massive abstract, which you could almost, they're so mm. large, you could almost step into them. But that, you know, mm. those those almost look like huge strips have been torn away. And it's it's just the way he's applied the paint in such a masterful manner. Um, I don't know. That can change my whole day if I see, Absolutely. <laughs> if I see those two things. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like, you know, in a, in a way that that's very healing to me in some ways. Yeah. Um, Murdoch has this like really beautiful definition of beauty, which I've always loved. And it's a, she says like, it's like looking out of your study window, looking out of a window and you see like, and you're kind of wrapped up in yourself and you're kind of in a kind of ego driven moment. And mm. you see a kestrel flying by in it. The sight of the bird lifts you out of yourself. And you're just like suspended in like this awe. And I've always loved that as a definition yeah. of beauty because it's so kind of intangible yeah. um, and it's not conventional in any sense. And it's not tied really to a visual. It's more about like presence and relationship and um, being able to like really dwell on something else. And I think yeah. like what you're saying one. about consolation is something there in that. Right. I, th I mean, I, that's a really beautiful definition. I actually, I'm going to look that up after, after we're done here. Cause I um, think that's really something uh, to dig deeper into for sure. Yeah. I can't stop writing about it. I love it so much, Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. but um, Murdoch's favorite painting is the yeah. flight is the flaying of Marcius or Marcius. Oh, really? Uh. Yes. <laughs> which is just wild so i also can't stop thinking about say, that <laughs> she could be the only one where that's their favorite <laughs> it's actually is hanging in her portrait that's hanging oh. in the national like portrait gallery in london oh my goodness yeah it's painted into the background by tom phillips oh, so. I know that. okay that's <laughs> that's hardcore I it's so hardcore <laughs> is taking it to a new level i know i know I know. Uh, would you like to read another poem? Sure. And um, yes, I'd be glad. I'd, I'm going to read um, an ekphrastic poem. Um, it is called Woman in Blue Reading a Letter, which is um, the, the same title of the painting uh, from Johannes Vermeer in Amsterdam. And it begins with an epigraph from Nico Case. It was so clear to me that it was almost invisible. It was mid-afternoon when I arrived in Amsterdam. The flight from California fueled a headache I couldn't shake. I checked into my hotel room, hoping a hot shower would restore me. I was slipping on my robe when I noticed the blinking red light on the room's phone, a message from my mother to call home. Her voice was low, a strange mixture of indecision and sadness. She spoke slowly, as though lowering an anchor. There had been an accident. Tommy, close as a brother, was dead. A drunk driver crossed the divider, hit him head on, the engine in his lap. I don't remember telling her goodbye, hanging up the phone, or getting dressed. But I rode the elevator down and walked the stone-paved streets, shell-shocked under a turquoise sky. At the Rijksmuseum, whose rib-vaulted portico remind me of a Gothic crypt, bicycles sped through the passageway before I entered. Upstairs, Vermeer had a room of his own. I stepped off the hardwood floor and sank deep into blue carpet. She was on the damask wall next to the milkmaid, illuminated by skylight glow. So small, she could fit in my suitcase. But I didn't care about the light or the colors. I didn't care about the woman or the news in her letter. It was the map hanging behind her, 
the one detail that had seemed incidental before was all I could focus on now. All those meandering lines leading to and away from home. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting um, thing about that poem, it used to be in three parts. And the first part was a full description of the painting. Oh. Um, and Diane took, and it was published in that, in that way um, at the Sand Hill Review. Mm. And Diane Seuss was taking a look at it and she says, you know, this part's really beautiful, but I wonder if it would work if we took it out. Mm. And I was like, okay, let's try it. <laughs> and we did. And it was like, yes, let's just go right into wow. when we arrive in Amsterdam. And it, it uh, really made the poem, uh, I think, much more immediate. And yes. um, I'm so grateful for that suggestion because I, um, I think it's, I think it, it makes the poem even more of a, what a necrastic should do, which is to me always tell what's going on outside the frame. Mm. Or uh, if you're talking about painting or, you know, outside the borders of a tapestry or, um, and that, that just starts it right. I think where it should be. So um, anyway, just a. Oh, wow. Kelly. Oh my God. That makes me so happy. That. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that about Nick Brastic. That makes me so happy. What's oh. going on outside? Ooh. On outside the frame. That's, I mean, that's oh, for me. So it's like, yes, it's really important mm -hmm. for a Nick At least I have, I've always, how I've always felt that you do not have that representation, that artistic representation there. So this poem has to stand on its own without it. And for me, that means telling the story of what's happening outside those, mm -hmm. that framework. It, yeah. That's how I access ekphrastics anyway. I or think what I loved about reading this poem for the first time, which I did in your book, was that um, as a reader, when you read Woman in Blue reading a letter, and of course, immediately... I mean, I'm like super obsessed with Vermeer probably right. more than Rembrandt. Yeah. Um, and so I <laughs> just throw that, <laughs> throw that, uh, contention, like that competition yeah. out there. Vermeer <laughs> person too. So yeah. In part, in part, because I think my quarantine heart really goes out to Vermeer who's constantly painting the same corner in his studio like right. over right. and over. <laughs> like how many times can I get this yes. light sort right? I don't I know. know. I'm going to keep going. And, and what like a blessing, like what a gorgeous window placement too. And right. so yeah. you're already there in his studio. As soon as you read the title, as soon as you see his name and, and link it, if you, mm. if you haven't remembered, you're like, okay, that's a pretty famous, um, Vermeer, right. you're probably going to be able to place it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we have the Neko case text, mm -hmm. which, which alters how we're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But then when you have that first line, it was mid-afternoon when I arrived in Amsterdam. I think it is so like gorgeously unsettling because you don't know at that point if it is the, the woman in blue reading a letter speaking or another speaker. Right. Um, and I just, I loved what that did for the painting for me. Um, it just opened it up into like a lived reality of a woman. Um, so that was just like unsettling in the best way. I love that. Another funny uh, story that I'm just thinking of this and this now, I mean, because this is this isn't a funny story. It's like really a heartrending poem. But um, the title I was when I was putting together the book and just you know double checking everything and blah blah blah. And I went to the Rijksmuseum website. And that's, you know, where this painting is located, of course. And so I'm looking and it's listed there as woman reading a letter. And I was like, what in the heck? I know this is woman in blue reading a letter. I've, I, I, this is so strange to me. And, but I'm thinking, well, this is the 
this is the museum that owns this. They should probably know if this is correct. So I, I actually wrote the, um, the curator there and he's like, no, of course this is woman in blue reading a letter. What are you talking about? I was like, well, on your website, he goes, oh, that's totally a login error. We're going to have to have that changed. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, yay, poets changing website credentials. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Anyway, that's wow. It matters. Oh, it matters to your collection where blue, you know, blue is all over. It's right? I was like, you can't be serious with <laughs> me telling me I got to take out blue. I, I didn't know what I was going to do because I was like, blue is just so in here. Yes. So anyway. <laughs> yes. Shade was, of blue. <laughs> I was relieved. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Poets are always out here doing the best research in archival work, I swear. Yeah, he's um. he was he was really he was a good good sport about it too. Cause I mean, I, well, when I was gonna become an art historian, this is this was like what I was gonna do. I was totally mm. into like the mm -hmm. research part of art history. Wow. So um I was I was I was just grateful that he said no, that's a mistake on art. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, this is a just a knockout ecrastic poem, and um, I hope everyone gets Shade of Blue Trees so they can read it, as well as um, your panel poems. And I mean, there's so much. It's such a. I also really love um, the feel of your book. Like it feels substantial in my hands. Um, it is. I mean, it's not one of those 120 pages, which are a little intimidating, but um it's well the panels nine. panels take up a lot of real estate in the book because um the panels are you know i think even the smallest one is three pages and mm -hmm. i think the longest one is uh six um and there's four of them one for each section mm -hmm. so um, um there's only i think what 37 poems in the book um which isn't a lot but the panels like i say take up a real estate but i also I wanted them, um, I, I like trimmer books, um, you know, I mean, all part and parcel of this thing is I think 79 pages, which is, which is good. I always get a little, a little worried about books that are, you know, hundreds. Um, Cause I'm just not sure if anybody's um, has that really great enough stuff to say in one book. But I always think, oh, did somebody not do the work of really some deliberate pruning? Um, with, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, uh, for sure, um, without a doubt. But um, I always like, I think I like books that are a little bit, um, a little bit uh, shorter. Um, that always means to me that they're probably tighter. Well, and you know, poetry books as a genre, I think, are so approachable because typically, I mean, even if it's like 120 pages, it's still small it's still next to every okay. other right. book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so there's something about them. Like I have some ADHD and um, so there's something about them that has always been approachable to me. Like, oh, I actually, I might have to return to it multiple times, but I actually can sit exactly. and read this whole book. Exactly. I mean, that's how I started back into poetry when um you know it was probably like 2006 or something and i had very small children and mm -hmm. i was exhausted mm -hmm. and um you know i was like i have to get back into just like reading and so i started with like haiku and mm -hmm. something small and manageable and i also use haiku to get back into writing when i haven't written in a while not because it's easy but because it's manageable and so with, and then after haiku, I just graduated to quote unquote, bigger poetry books um, and lengthwise and things, longer poems and things, but it was something I could read at night. I could read a poem at night before I went to bed because mm. I was, you know, I was falling asleep through novels because I was just so tired. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, okay, I can, I can do a poem at night. Yeah. And, and then that just rekindled my love of poetry and my love of writing and it, you know, went from there. So wow. all, all props to poetry, mm -hmm. life-saving. Yes. For fitting into the marginal times. 
Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I think that that reading before bed is so precious. And when you don't have it, that, that is hard not to have. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So it's like, I had to come up with something and I'm glad this was it because it changed my life. Can you talk a little bit about the form of um, your, your panel poems? Because sure. I mean, we've brought up that. It's an invented form uh, that I came up with because what I wanted to express and how I wanted to express it um, came to me in this way. And I just knew how I wanted it to look and how I, how I wanted how it wanted to sound or how I wanted it to sound. If I could speak for it, that would be great. Um, so I, I have, you know, studied art history quite a bit and I was really in particularly fascinated with Northern Renaissance art. And so the, the idea of triptychs or polyptychs where you have these wooden panels that hang together with different themes or different um, scenes, but all hang together in a, a single theme. And um, I started, the first one was uh, Panels of a Blue Summer. And um, I had this, uh, I wanted them all to begin with an epigraph of um, something that was reflective of what I was trying to express. And then I wanted that first, uh, it's usually, um, it's usually two to four lines of something that's rhyming to introduce the section and then we go into um these super unbridled lyric uh over the top latent (laughs) i don't know what else it's like ultra painterly uh um how i just wanted to um i wanted to see how far i could take metaphor and uh expressing emotion and creating these uh these worlds unto themselves um and normally in the panels each part is a separate voice with the exception of the spring panel which is all about marie antoinette uh but at different different stages in her life that's what each section represents um so that's basically it. And I just saw them uh, separated, the sections separated by these uh, black diamond shapes. Um, these were murderous to f- set in form. I knew they, I knew I wanted them centered and justified in the center of the page. Mm-hmm. They were super hard for everybody to format, whether it was journals <laughs> or my press and we secretly called them the panels at at as <laughs> <laughs> Annette and I were like it was murderous oh um, so, um so yeah really hard and oh god I my heart goes out to the four journals who publish these I can never thank them enough they have my undying love for accepting these <laughs> These are, um, these are kind of my babies. And um, I was always really thrilled when they uh, found homes because mm. they're long. So again, they take up a lot of space if it's a print journal and two of them were in print journals. Um, and so I, I was always super grateful to the editors for giving these a chance. Um, especially Waterstone Review, who published the longest one, the um, Celestial Autumn. And uh, they were so good about getting the form as as right as humanly possible. So um, yeah, from now on, it's like all justified <laughs> for me, all just total normal. <laughs> because these were, these were so brutal for everybody and yeah. I, felt horrible but um I still like them well it certainly shows because they're beautiful on the page I think the blocks are just so and the sections are so pleasing to the eye um I mean it's it's interesting because you think about I mean poetry can be so incredible especially web formatting so incredibly tricky Mm. um yeah when it comes to you know diverging forms whereas if you were literally working on panels it it would be really easy to have your mm-hmm. 
wood panels or you know whatever your your medium yeah, is. Yeah, I kind of thought, I guess, in my naivete that that would translate well to the page. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be cool. They'll just all hang here in the minute. No, that's not what happened. It's like, <laughs> what is happening? So, uh, yeah, but um, I'm really, uh, I'm, I was really so happy that um, they were all in here. And again, it was Molly Spencer who, mm. who was like, you know, you have to write that fourth panel. You have the other three seasons. You cannot mm. write Autumn. I was like, I hate you. This is murder <laughs> because these, I mean, that, that took another year for me to write this. Oh, wow. By the time I like got everything down, what I wanted to do with it. But it's also my favorite poem in the book mm. is the Celestial Autumn panel, probably because I worked so ridiculously hard on it and um yes of course they all had to be in there and mm. but i needed somebody to just be like come on go you know, molly <laughs> you know so, and and they are they're like cornerstones in each section and um they're mm. you know my anchors in this book and um i'm really glad they're all there because when i wrote them and you and this is the first time they've ever been together in uh, mm. in anything together is that there are intentional overlaps woven between them all mm -hmm. um which um maybe people will notice maybe they won't i know they're there and uh i worked um you know i wanted them to function as as a unit mm -hmm. as well um so there all the overlaps uh that there are there whether it may be syntactical or a word or an image those are um intentional because i wanted them to be woven together that makes so much sense and i think as you you know think about how books are organized which is its own uh yeah. magical frustrating process um that's a good way to describe it <laughs> The hyphenated word magical frustrating yes i i think we should bring back i don't know divining or something when it comes to like putting your books together because wow um but having you know a panel uh, poem in each section throughout it gives such incredible cohesion and pattern and design and i think it's really really and truly an incredible hybrid poem for thinking about visual art and poetry and how the two are able to cross with each other. Um, and I think about, I tried to look it up today and I couldn't find it, but I want to say um, the poet C.A. Conrad had said, I think it was a tweet about like um, how they were tired of poetry kind of being our uh, visual arts. Um, they used a word starting with a B, but like being um, like, basically like a servant or you know? subservient to art yes like that it was always art like poetry doing the hard work of ekphrasis for oh. visual art and oh. not like visual art doing the same thing for poetry or <laughs> i could see i could see them saying that that's really yes. cool yeah and i and i think about that a lot because i i love ekphrastic work um and I, and this came up in my mind earlier when we were talking about ekphrasis and what you were saying about going outside the frame, which is just so utterly brilliant. And I just need to go take a vacation and think about that. Um, <laughs> just, just that by myself, um, uh, in my dream world. And, but, um, I think of Elizabeth Bishop's The Fish, where, um, oh, something she really shows you in that poem is that poetry can really be description like it can begin. And I think for a lot of us sometimes when we fall back on like, how do I even write a poem again? Like, how do I start? I can't do anything. Like if you begin to describe something, you can find mm -hmm. your way into a poem. Um, so I love that idea of like to describing a painting and then taking away that description part and being like, what happens? What happens there. when it's there and you need it? Yeah. And what happens when it goes? But um, I think paying attention to any small mm -hmm. thing can get you writing yes. and yes that can start with description or listening yes um and um just that 
you know, focusing, you know, I don't know, I'm a firm believer in like following your obsessions and things. So it's like, if you're obsessed with something, just yes, look at it and focus on it and then start there and see, see what comes up, comes of it. What do you, what do you see about it? Or, you know, what, again, back to sounds, mm-hmm. you know, someone told the beast, this was in a silent retreat. So, um, you know, you go with with what's around you. Yeah. Observe. It's true. It's true. And being your your weird best, I think, is weird best is, is always wave your freak flag high. Because you just really can't see, and this is something other people can help us with, but you just can't see what's sometimes significant about your own work without speaking to other people, because it's like a fish in water sometimes. Yes. No, I think it's really important to surround yourself with a supportive group of people who are looking at your work with a a keen and honest eye. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have somebody that tells you this is not ready yet, that's a real gift. And um, it's, um, I'm so glad I have people in my life. Uh, that um, certainly helped get this book to where it is mm-hmm. just to say you know this this needs as I like to say this needs more love yes <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'll say to somebody when you know this is good I wouldn't change this but this part it needs more love mm-hmm. and that's uh, and I don't know it's, it's just um, just a joy when you have people like that in your life to help you work things out yeah I find that I mean I I adore editing myself and Mm. um I love a collaborative process I love what happens Mm. when someone else's attention comes to your work or vice versa um I have found I struggle with gendered reading sometimes um and I struggle sometimes when men read my work Mm. (laughs) and I I find it so much more collaborative when I'm working with a Mm -hmm. woman or femme writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really interesting, but it is a struggle for me. I do admit. I, um, yeah, I don't even think I work with men. So maybe (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, honestly, I'm thinking of people that I work with and the only guy I work with is my husband. Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's really my first reader you know and he's he's uh he's he's lovely and so he he will and he comes at it from like a more scientific he's a scientist Uh, comes at it from a totally a different place but he's also super sensitive so um he's he's really attuned uh, and he's not um you know he's not a chauvinist or any uh thing like that so but honestly, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm at a loss of. Um, That's so precious, Kelly. That's so wonderful that you have a spouse. My spouse is so tired of poems; they don't read them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm done. I know, I've- or, or I will say, Have you read this poem? <laughs> and they'll be like, Yes, I read that poem. I'll be like, No, you did it. <laughs> it's fine. I have other people. <laughs> But really, that's really beautiful. Every time someone's like, oh, my spouse is my first reader, like my heart just felts. And I love, I love hearing that. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I don't always take what he has to say uh, <laughs> to your heart, but I mean, sometimes he's really brought up some really great points because it's like, oh, I didn't think of that. Or mm. yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Or, um, you know, he's he's definitely um, been a help for sure. And it's, yeah. you know, it's non, I can't help him with his physics, but um, <laughs> you know, it's, he's, he's like totally non-threatening, you know, he's just like, <laughs> here's what I might leave here, you know, and, yes. um, and he's, he's German. So English is not his first language. Oh. So um, he's also filtering it through, uh, through that, which is always interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. Oh, this has been such a good conversation. I feel like I could this just talk really to you fun. For another few hours. Um, <laughs> hey, anytime you want to chat, I'm here. Right. 
<laughs> Would you like to close us out with a poem? Sure. Is there is there one you are thinking of? Ooh, you mentioned something to remember earlier. Yes, is I could do that one. Final. That's um. This is something to remember. This is um. One I which I call well I dedicated to Mark Strand. Mm. Something to remember. Darkness does not hunger for anything. It has everything it needs. The ribs of shadows are fat with the secrets of the living and the dead. It never wallows in loneliness, never says, leave a message for me if you can. It doesn't care about your tongue of honey and stars your breath of apples and wine. It's busy quilting corners of indifference and will return again and again. As you go from room to room, cloaking your mirrors for winter, let the coldness you feel at the nape move in like fog, shawling you in her gown of gray beads. Listen when she whispers, if you are patient, your eyes will adjust to the dark. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. It's been my pleasure. So now to close, thank you so much for joining us for episode five of Of Poetry Podcast. If you would like to read more of Kelly Cressia Muller's work, please visit www.kellycressiamoller.com and we'll also link to Kelly's website and her new book Shade of Blue Trees from To Sylvia's Press um, on the episode post page and thank you so much for listening thank you